From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, we remember a longtime Denver grocery store worker who died of COVID-19. Randy Narvaez was with King Supers for 30 years. They're planning a memorial service. He wasn't like, you know, like a boss. He kind of played with us. He talked with us. We even ate together. He was, he was real cool. That's a woman he used to supervise. She's at another store now, which she says is too crowded with too few people in masks. You know, a lot of employees, they're scared. So we're really trying to, you know, help enforce that you need to wear a mask. We'll also get the company's view. Later, how one of the state's largest districts envisions back to school. And at the end of today's show... Let's dance, because it's a holiday weekend, and we're in a pandemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. On the state's outbreak list, there are several grocery stores, including the Denver Capitol Hill King Supers, where 51-year-old Randy Narvaez works. The outbreak there, 11 people, was declared May 12th, Narvaez died of coronavirus about a week later. In a few minutes, we'll hear from the supermarket chain about the precautions they're taking and not taking. First, one of Randy's friends and colleagues. She and Randy worked together for nine years at a different store. He went on to Cap Hill. She went on to another Denver area, King Supers. We're not saying which one, nor are we using her name, because she'll comment on store conditions and she fears for her job. So one of the things I keep reading about Randy in the remembrances is that he was very fun to work with. Was that your experience? Oh, my God, yes. He wasn't like, you know, like a boss. He kind of played with us. He talked with us. We even ate together. He was he was real cool. It was me and another girl at the desk. She gave me this name. Um, we used to call him OG. OG. Yeah. Randy was a big guy, but he had like a really like a teddy bear type attitude. He was, he was really nice. But OG is like an original gangster? Yeah, we call him OG because he was like our big OG. The fact that you would want to eat with your boss says something to me. Yeah. And my daughter even told me yesterday, because um, she worked there for a minute in a deli, she even told me, she's like, Mom, I remember him even when I had money by lunch, he would buy me lunch. I didn't even realized that she remembered who he was. And she's like, yeah, I liked him. He, he bought me a lunch a couple of times. Apparently he was a big Broncos fan. Oh, yeah. And I still would drag him about his Broncos and my Saints. You couldn't tell Randy none about his Broncos. <laughs> okay, you're a New Orleans fan, I see. He had this sound he used to make all the time. When he would get upset or something in the store, he'd go, shh, and then breathe really hard. We would always make that same sound like when he came around, and it would make him laugh. He was playful, it sounds like. Yeah, he was. Was he good at his job? Oh, awesome. Yeah, he was awesome. He'd come in on his off days. They'd ask him to stay longer. He would do it. He never told them no. He never told King Supers no. So I'm curious what it's like to work in a grocery store right now. You work in customer service, and Mm -hmm. what's a day like? Well, recently I just went back myself because I was sick, <clears throat> and my doctor had put me on quarantine, so I stayed home because I didn't want to get anybody else sicker. Mine was more like I had like a really bad sinus infection, and she said they would still treat me like I had the virus. But I have to say my store, they've been pretty good about 
giving us masks, gloves. The only thing I'm having issues with, like every store I've been in, they're letting too many people in. It's like, what makes, yeah, what makes you say that when you say too many people? So what King Supers has said is they're limiting store capacity to 50% of normal, one person for every 120 square feet of store space. Are, are you saying they're not following that or even that feels like too much? That feels like too much to me. It does. It feels like too much. And it's, it's, you'd have to sit there and watch it and look. They explain that to us, that that's what they're doing, but... To me, I still think that's too many people in the store. It's too many people. You know, people are touching stuff. It's, it's just too much. Like our store, we have, like, I guess it's every 30 minutes that we do a cleanup. You know, our manager's been on it. I have to say our manager's been on it. They've hired people just to spray buggies down and clean them. And that person stays there all day, that person and another person. You know, but it's just, I think it's just too many people coming in and out the store. And a lot of people honestly don't want to wear a mask. We've had to tell people we're not going to help them if they don't put a mask on. Well, let's be clear. Do most people come in with masks? Like, what what would you say is the rough percentage? Um, half and half, 50. Really? Okay. And lately, what I've been doing is I'm not supposed to. Sometimes when I see a person that doesn't have a mask, the ones that they give us, I'll go grab one. But we have masks we're selling. So I, I have a coworker sometimes that stands at the door and she if she sees a person without a mask, she'll direct them to the service desk because we have masks in front of the service desk. So she'll show them and tell them they can buy one of those. But she's real anal about She's like, nope, no, you can't come. Nope, no, you have to have a mask on. But we also have a big sign right in front of the door before they walk in that some people act like they don't see. But it, we, we've been trying, you know, a lot of employees, they're scared. So we're really trying to, you know, help enforce that you need to wear a mask. Now, do you feel emboldened to turn customers away if they don't wear a mask or won't wear a mask? Um, because I know some people can't afford, honestly, some people can't even afford to buy masks, so I feel bad for them. But people have to understand you it's our safety, you know, and... I don't know. I'm just like, if you're you're noticing, it's on TV now, it's everywhere you go that you need to have a mask. You can take a shirt and put it around your neck or your face. You know, it's it's just, I think people don't want to because I've had people come to the desk and tell me that um, <clears throat> it's a stupid idea. And I'm like, okay, well, if it's so stupid, you know, <clears throat> why are there all these people dying? You know, and <clears throat> I don't take that lightly because like I said, I have a sick daughter and she has been in the hospital too many times to count. She has a lot of health issues, and I can't be taking that around her. I can't get her sick. I'm not going to get me sick. And, you know, I have grandkids, and I'm not doing it. You know, my daughter just tested negative twice, and she was in the hospital with pneumonia both times. Oh, my goodness. You know, so yeah, so. I, I want to be really clear. Um, so I'll ask this again. Do you feel that King Supers has given you the power and do you feel comfortable saying to a customer, I'm not going to help you if you don't have a mask? Um, my store has. But I've had friends at other stores that say they just like feel like they're not enforcing it enough. Mm-hmm. You know, my store has. And like I said, even before Randy died, I mean, I have messages on my Facebook that me and him talked to Facebook and he was upset about how many people were coming in the store. 
And he was just like, it's ridiculous. And he said it himself. I can go back and scroll through it. And he was like upset about how many people they were still letting in the store. How do you think King Supers has done in general? I, hmm, I think they've really tried, but they're not trying hard enough. Because just like recently, we just got our hero pay taken away from us. That's actually $2. Yeah. So what, the, what they're doing instead, apparently, is they're going to offer bonuses, two two bonuses. Yeah. yeah. 200 for, okay, there, and see, this is where it gives me, I'm a full-time, but there are people that are working full-time hours that are part-time. So they're only getting 200 and then I don't get it. Why are you guys splitting the payment up, like, get one half, one month, and then the next month, and then when we do get it, it's taxed anyways. You're not getting what... They said you're going to get anyways. It's $400 for full-time workers, $200 for part-time workers to be paid out in two installments, May 30th and June 18th. You, you'd like to see the hazard pay of $2 an hour continued. Yeah, I think they should still do that. Because we talk about it every day, a lot of my coworkers. It's, it, to me, I'm not trying to be funny and ungrateful, but it's still not enough because we're struggling. A lot of us are struggling bad. You know, the ones that are working or, you know, you do get sick. You have to go home and stay home until. So it's bad. You know, like I said, I I watch one of my daughters. They get unemployment. They make more on unemployment than we get, you know, just working our butts off. And, I mean, we work our butts off. The first couple weeks when this happened, there's like nothing on the shelves. People were just taking everything. The stores were crowded, you know, and it was overwhelming. Nobody understands. It was like I went home crying some days because I was so stressed out. And then we, the employees, we have we watch everybody grab stuff they need for their households. And at the end of the day, we don't get anything for our households. We can't find Lysol. We can't find tissue because we service the customers and make sure they're okay. But our households are going without, you know, and it's, it's to me, it's sad. It's at a point sometimes we have to get stuff and then put it up, you know, so we can buy it. But you're, we're not supposed to do that. But what do you say when, you know, you got to take care of your family, too? What sort of checks are in place for employees? In other words, you'd said that you'd been ill and then you returned to work. So how, how does the shift start and, and what happens throughout a shift? Well, when we get to work, they have to ask us, you know, are we sick? Have we been coughing? The managers do this and they they ask you, are you sick? Are you coughing? Do you have a fever? And then they have a scanner. They scan across our head, um, check our, if we have a fever. Thermometer, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then they write it down. They Some people they do before they leave and when they get there. I know as soon as I get in the morning, they call me up the stairs and take my temperature and ask me if I've been coughing or, you know, sick. So that's what our store has. But I have friends at other stores. They said they don't even do that. So... So it sounds like it differs from store to store. And Mm -hmm. then, like, throughout the day, I'm picturing you at the customer service counter. Are you just hand sanitizing a lot, or do you have to go wash your hands every... Like, how does that work? Uh, Me, because I have, like, really sensitive skin. So there's a a floral, so I walk over there. I'm over there every couple minutes washing my hands. We try to wear gloves, but working at the desk is kind of hard. But, you know, we do have boxes of gloves. But um, I wash my hands a whole lot, <laughs> a whole lot. But see, some the checkers don't have that where they can just walk right there and wash their hands. So they wear a lot of gloves in the front end. It's just weird because I see customers even come in with gloves. 
And I think they should carry another pair with them because they'll come in and touch all the fruit and the vegetables. And so I, that's why I stress, like, if people do buy vegetables, please wash them because people are touching them with these gloves that are contaminated, too. Do you like your job? I do. I just think Kroger should... I just think Kroger's could do better. <laughs> I, I like it. I like the people because they're like family. I've actually... As of was it May 11th, that was my 14th year. Oh, my. The benefits aren't that bad. It, it just depends. But I think with the money they're making, and then where our CEO just got, what, 21%, he didn't do that alone. It was all of us. You know, so I just think it, it should be more. It should be more of what they're paying us because I don't care if you know. I'm a, I've been there 14 years, and I'm only making 16.23, and that's ridiculous. Thanks for talking to us. You're welcome, Mark. I appreciate you calling me. (laughs) A Denver-area King Supers employee on working in a grocery store during the pandemic. She also remembered her friend, 51-year-old Randy Narvaez, who was with the chain for three decades. His union plans a memorial a week from Sunday, a parade of cars around the Capitol Hill store. Let's get the company's perspective. Jessica Trowbridge is corporate affairs manager for King Supers. You know, this has been a really hard week for us. You know, we didn't just lose an associate. We we lost a member of our King Supers family, and we never want to lose an associate, especially not to COVID-19. So this has just really been a hard time for us. There are currently 11 cases of COVID listed at that Capitol Hill store where he worked. This is on the state outbreak website. Four cases at uh, King Supers in Littleton on Ken Carroll a four in Littleton on Wadsworth, and then a, a larger outbreak that dates back to last month, 26 cases and a death at a King Supers bakery. So am I right to say that Mr. Narvaez's death is not the first death of, from COVID-19 in Colorado in the Kroger family? That's correct, unfortunately. What changes have you made in light specifically of Mr. Narvaez's death so local to that store, and then perhaps you can talk to stores in general. We're responding to this global pandemic, and we're making sure that we're working hand-in-hand with the local health departments who have repeatedly affirmed our process and our high safety standards to make sure that we're providing a safe working environment for our associates and a safe shopping environment for our customers. I can assure you that nothing is more important than the safety of our associates and our community. Um, And so, We've obviously had to make a lot of changes and adapt the way that we operate in order to provide that shopping experience and that working experience that is safe. So some of the things that you see, right, when you come into our stores, you see people wearing, our our associates wearing their facial coverings. They're required to wear those every single shift. We've installed plexiglass partitions at checkout. We've added educational decals to the floor to help promote and ensure physical distancing. You can see our associates frequently cleaning high-touch areas of the store. What you might not see but is also happening is that we're doing temperature checks when our associates come to work. We're also doing symptom monitoring. Um, We've lowered the capacity limits in our store to 50% of the building capacity code, which equals out to about a person per 120 square feet of store space. And what's really cool about that and why I say you might not see that is we use a technology called QVision that automatically tracks the number of people entering and exiting our stores. Um, In addition to that, you know, this is 
safety is really important to us before the pandemic and throughout the pandemic. And so all of our best practices are constantly being reinforced with our associates on a daily basis. Have there been any specific changes unique to the Capitol Hill store after the death of Mr. Narvaez? So I can assure you that anytime we have a confirmed case at any store, we take immediate action. The associate is quarantined per our emergency leave guidelines, and the store is disinfected and deep cleaned using a CDC-approved cleaning vendor. So what explains why there are apparently 11 cases in that store? Uh, There were many more cases, 26 at a King Super's Kroger Bakery. This is not a place that customers walk into. It's a sort of central spot. How would you explain those numbers? Well, I can't speak specifically to why a certain facility would have an increase in cases over others. What I can tell you is that we continue to follow our best practices and we're following guidance of state, local, federal government, including the CDC, on the best practices that should be in place to ensure that our stores are clean, safe places for our customers and our associates. Now, uh, the source we have says that um, her store generally does quite well. Temperature checks, as you've mentioned, routine cleanings, asking employees about symptoms. But she says that even under the new guidelines, the store feels just too full. Could you comment on that? I think we know that Physical distancing is one of the most important ways to help reduce the spread of COVID-19 and really flatten the curve. And it's our top priority, which is why we have reduced our capacity limits to 50 percent and also incorporated many other measures like the plexiglass partitions, the educational floor decals, so that when those people or when our customers are in the stores, that they're able to see how to effectively maintain proper social distancing. Our employee source estimates only about half of customers come in wearing masks. Why doesn't King Supers have a no mask, no service policy? You know, we're strongly encouraging and we want all of our customers to wear masks based on CDC recommendations. In areas where there are local ordinances, we are making sure that we as a business are making every reasonable effort to get compliance from the community. You know, we've put up signage, we have overhead announcements reminding customers to wear their facial coverings. Additionally, our teams are engaging with customers who enter the facility to remind them that there is an ordinance in place and that for their safety and the safety of others, we request that they wear a facial covering. Why not say no mask, no service? You know, as as you know, this topic has become quite controversial and enforcement can be challenging for our teams. And, you know, we don't hire our associates to be the police. We hire them because they have a passion for food and they have a passion for people. And it's very difficult to put them in a role that they're not trained for or hired for um, with enforcing facial covering wearing. I think, though, that it, this is also about their health and a no mask, no service policy would give them the ability to say, no, you're threatening my health. And and anything less than that means they're in the position of having to engage with a customer who's unmasked. And I think we, like I, like I mentioned, we are strongly encouraging and we want all of our customers to wear masks. And we've put signage up at all of our stores, encouraging customers to follow that practice that's been suggested by the CDC and You know, our hope is that customers will follow that same practice. Our source says that safety practices are inconsistent from store to store. As I said, she gets a temperature check, but she says that's not true of some of her colleagues at other stores. 
can you help me understand whether store managers have some discretion in their approach to COVID-19, or you assume that all stores are adhering to all of these practices? There is no discretion in these practices. These are the safety best practices that we've put in place, and every store team across the state should be implementing and is implementing these best practices. And if an employee recognizes something that they don't think is safe, and maybe it's behavior by another member of the staff or, frankly, customer behavior, what should they do with that information? We have an open door policy and we encourage our associates to relay any and all feedback, positive, negative to their store leader, um, because if we're not aware of that feedback, we can't act on it. So we highly encourage them to speak to their store leadership team. Their store leadership. And if they don't feel comfortable doing that, what should they do? They are more than welcome to reach out to any of our executives, to anybody at our office team. I mean, we want to hear their feedback and know what they're seeing, feeling, and thinking. Let's talk about why Kroger ended what was called Hero Pay. Um, This was an extra $2 an hour, and what the company is doing instead is offering bonus payments that will be doled out in two different paychecks, and the amounts differ for part-time versus full-time employees. Can you speak to why that shifted? So we continue to evaluate the way that we're recognizing our associates for the great work that they're doing. So to acknowledge our associates, we provided appreciation pay and have now followed up with a thank you bonus to acknowledge the time when they were doing so much more than their job. As our business begins to return to normal and we continue to evaluate our associates' needs as the global pandemic continues to evolve. Um, Additionally, to relieve our associates' workload, we have hired over 6,000 associates from some of the hardest-hit sectors like restaurants, hotels, and food service distributors to help meet the daily needs of our customers. We truly, from the bottom of our hearts, appreciate everything our associates do and all that they continue to do. But in transitioning to bonuses, it sounds like you're saying it's less intense. It's not as intense as it was. Correct. Our business has returned to a more normal pace, if you will. And so as our business evolves and as the pandemic evolves, we continue to evaluate the situation and our associates' needs um, as it progresses. Thanks so much, Jessica. You're welcome. Jessica Trowbridge, Corporate Affairs Manager for King Supers. She adds that there was a second deep clean of that Capitol Hill store where 11 people contracted COVID-19. Again, one death, the rest are quarantined. All other associates at the store are being tested, which started Wednesday, Trowbridge says. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how one of the state's largest school districts plans to reopen classrooms in the fall. I'm Ryan Warner. I'm here with CPR News. Grateful for everything I get from CPR, and I'm also grateful that I'm in a position where I can contribute. Thank you to Colorado Public Radio's Community of Support, your ongoing commitment to supporting CPR and your donations during the recent membership drive are keeping CPR strong. Thank you for making an impact, for giving for those who can't, and thank you for making the spring drive a success. Another rite of passage upended by the pandemic. Today is the last day of school for Jeffco Public Schools, the state's second largest district. But of course, kids won't be stampeding from classrooms towards summer. They end the year at home. Also today, Jeffco releases its return to school plan for the fall. And Superintendent Jason Glass joins us. Jason, welcome back to the show. 
Jason, you there? I am. Sorry about that, Ryan. Not at all. So there are still so many unknowns around COVID-19. And of course, there are a lot of different views on how quickly things should reopen. I have to think that anticipating the future for 85,000 students and 14,000 employees, that, that must have been a difficult task. Well, that's uh, the challenge that we have right now is trying to foresee what um, the world will be like in August and what sort of restrictions or best practices may exist and how we can reopen schools safely in the fall. So as we've seen, our assumptions have had to shift um, every day, sometimes every week um, as, as we've gone through this. So we're trying to think about what school will be like, uh, what, what restrictions will be in place, and then plan for that. Yeah. Do you think the, the politics play into this at all, the polarization we're seeing? Well, we've certainly seen the polarization in um, just our initial uh, information that we've sent out to communities. We get sort of two extremes. One group thinks that uh, we're moving way too fast, that we should keep everything in remote learning only uh, and not have any in-person learning. And then we have another group that wants to pretend this is sort of not happening, that we should uh, return everything just to like it was. What we've tried to stress is that we're committed to restoring in-person learning to the greatest extent we possibly can. And the reasons for that are academic. We know kids are falling behind. Mm. They're social-emotional. We know kids are disconnected from each other and struggling with with trauma and uh, mental health concerns. And they're economic. We know that when school is out and we can't provide that service to our community, we create one of those drags on the economy that we're feeling. So we're committed to restoring in-person learning to the greatest extent we can and trying to find a way to do so where we take every possible measure to keep uh, students and staff and our community as safe as we can. I want to pick up on something you said there. We know they're falling behind. Uh, that's what you just heard from the superintendent of Jeffco Public Schools. How do you know they're falling behind? What are your indicators? Well, we have uh, research where we've looked at uh, summer slide uh, that's more common. And we also s- saw after Hurricane Katrina, uh, when school was out for an extended period of time, it took uh, students in New Orleans sometimes uh, a year to two years to recover from that loss. Now, in our case, we've intervened with remote learning in this period. So it's not like nothing was happening. So we we believe that we've uh, taken steps to try and mitigate that loss to the greatest extent we can. And we've seen engagement rates of over 95% across our district. So those are good indicators that we've done what we can to mitigate the loss. But I don't think we should whitewash the challenges either. Remote learning is not as um, as strong as in-person learning. And, and we know that the struggles with remote learning are exacerbated in our communities that are more disadvantaged or underserved. So families that are in poverty, families that are um, uh, learning English, uh, students with disabilities, these students uh, um, we know are even more behind and, and will need more support when we come back. This restart plan for Jeffco Schools outlines three scenarios in school learning, sort of the traditional school model that we know, but with social distancing, of course. Uh, the second is remote learning, which is what education has looked like for the past few months, and then a, a hybrid model. Uh, I don't know. Let's let's step into the shoes of a Jeffco student in the fall. Will they experience all three of those models? I think that's likely, um, and and we should expect that some families are not going to want to return to in-person learning, so we want to have a remote learning option for them. Oh. 
We expect that some of our families will want in-person learning in some form, and so we want to create that option and do so as safely as we can. Uh, and we know that we're likely to experience outbreaks at different periods. So we may have to transition back and forth between school as we used to know it and then uh, a remote learning environment. Another driving factor uh, in, in looking at the sort of hybridization between remote learning and in-person learning are requirements around social distancing. Yeah. That, that, that is strongly driving our models for what school may look like in the fall. So if we have to create these six-foot um, uh, circles around students where uh, we, we maintain that social distancing, or if we have limitations on the number of students that we can have in any one space, that leads us into having to go to different schedules or structures where we don't have all of the students in school on one day. I think we're, we're again, looking ahead to the fall and trying to think about what, what are the restrictions that are going to be in place. Whatever is applied to our community, that's the same standard of social distancing that we're going to have in our schools. So it's been suggested that, again, we just sort of pretend this is not happening, but there's no way that we're going to open schools at a lesser public health standard than what the rest of the community is looking at. Are you operating on the assumption that there will be about 10 kids or 10 people total, including kids per classroom? That's where we have been up to this point, but we're starting to see more guidance come out from our public health partners, uh, and, and they, they don't know exactly what the restrictions are going to be in the fall either. But uh -huh. from what they've told us is that we should expect some relaxation of that number, and that's going to help a lot in how we're able to restore in-person learning to the greatest extent possible. We will have to do a number of other steps uh, to ensure uh, public health. And so social distancing is one tool that you use. Other tools that you use are things like symptom screening and temperature checks coming in. Uh, they're recommended uh, face coverings. We have to restructure how students move through the building, how kind of traffic happens uh, at school during the day. We have to uh, revise schedules uh, so that we don't have students moving through hallways and going and uh, regrouping into different uh, classes during the day. We have to look at how we deliver food service and how things like recess or, or PE happen uh, to maintain social distancing and also um, uh, ensure public health to the greatest extent we can. And at some point, we may have uh, testing available, which will help a lot too. So we, we have to oh. look at a combination of, of factors. And what, what combination of factors can we put in place where we can restore learning, in-person learning to the greatest extent we can, and make sure that we're protecting public health and our students. And monitoring it. Jason Glass joins us, superintendent of Jeffco Public Schools today. The second largest, largest district in the state releases its back-to-school plan in the face of COVID-19. It does strike me, Jason, that this restart plan asks a lot from teachers. They'll be asked to teach in new ways, in a new system. Some will require additional training. Some will not necessarily work in areas they're comfortable in or trained for. How do you prevent teachers from burning out and ensure their mental health? Well, we have had suggestions about around starting that training right now, and we've resisted that because of what I want our staff and our students and our parents to do is take a breath here on the last day of school. We're, it's, it's going to be very complicated in the fall, as you mentioned, um, and, and it's going to be a lot of work. So I need people to recharge, reset, and get ready for that work. Whatever plan we put forward, it's got to be something that our staff can actually execute. Uh, so we have been gathering feedback from our staff members 
this week, and we'll continue to do that over the summer. They got an early look at our, our restart plan, and so they could provide uh, their thoughts and suggestions and critiques on how this could be made better. We're going to incorporate all that and, again, stand up a plan for the fall that, uh, that we can actually execute. Did they make any suggestions that you included? Yes, we've seen, um, we've sort of had three rounds of, of feedback and revision. The first version of our plan was based on looking at international systems that were a little further ahead of us, hmm. uh, other plans that were coming out early uh, from other systems in the United States, as well as sort of guidance from uh, epidemiologists or public health experts or policy think tanks. So we pulled all that together to form our initial plan. Uh, as a draft. We released that to our principals and got their feedback last week. Then we gave it to our staff internally uh, early this week, and we're collecting that feedback now. And then uh, it'll go out to the community on Friday. At every point, we've made significant revisions based on what we've heard. And now as it goes out to the community, we expect to make significant revisions again. But it gets tighter and it gets better at every point of revision. So I have to just underscore that what we've put forth is a draft. Is a draft what's coming out today. How are you taking care of teachers' mental health? And students' mental health. Do you see yourself to some extent as a provider in this regard, mental health provider? Well, that's that's been a significant concern all through this. We know that one of the determinants of, of um, positive mental health are those connections that we have with people in our life who care about us, who know us, and who are interested in our well-being. And so when we shift to remote learning, we lose a lot of that. Yeah. I think we were fortunate this past spring in that when it, when it happened, uh, when schools shut down and shifted to remote learning, we had a whole that whole school year up to that point of building those positive relationships. And so that's a lot of why our students kept logging in. They kept getting online. They kept participating. Why we were able to get to that 95% engagement number is because we had those strong relationships in place. I think going forward, that's the first work that we've got to do to come back in the fall. We've got to make sure that we've got those solid relationships between our teachers and our students and our families. Just very briefly, do you think you'd hold classes outside? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, anything that we can do to increase ventilation, fresh air, we're going to look at. We have to balance that with uh, school safety concerns and think about how we how we might do that safely. But while we've got good weather, we're going to use that. I'd like to wrap up with your budget, um, because we know that public budgets are in something of a free fall, given the economic impacts of COVID-19. Does Jeffco Public Schools plan cuts, layoffs, a shorter school week, a halt on school construction, uh, just briefly? Sure. Well, we were planning on a 12% reduction below our current level. That really would have been catastrophic um, in terms of the magnitude of that, that reduction. Uh, we've got some good news from the governor this week and how uh, the legislature is, is thinking about using the federal CARES Act money to support uh, schools for next year, that solves a lot of the problem. That moves us into a 5% cut range. And Jeffco has built a nice cash reserve, so we're going to have some cushion to get through this next year. I'm more concerned about the multi-year effects, so mm-hmm. what happens the year after that and the year after that. We know that we have limitations on how revenue returns uh, to, through taxation uh, to the state in Colorado, and so we should expect multi-year effects just like we did following the Great Recession. Jason, thanks so much. I understand you have to dash off to a virtual last day of school event. I appreciate your time. Jason Glass there, superintendent of Jeffco Public Schools, second largest district in the state. 
He'll release his restart plan as he emphasizes a draft later today. Still to come, the virtual campaign trail. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's a one-time only live event on CPR Classical. Music is so ephemeral. Cellist Yo-Yo Ma performs the complete cello suites by Bach to honor lives lost during the pandemic and pay tribute to the resilience of our communities. His two-year world tour of Bach started at Red Rocks in 2018 and returns to life in this special broadcast. Yo-Yo Ma live, Sunday at 1. Watch at CPR.org or tell your smart speaker to play CPR Classical. Campaigning in the COVID era is the subject of the latest episode of Purplish, our politics podcast. What does the switch to virtual campaigns mean for candidates and voters? This time, CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim joins hosts Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. I wanted to talk about this really interesting story that Caitlin did this week about a Joe Biden campaign event that you attended, but I'm not actually sure if attended is the the right word or not. Yeah, um, attended probably isn't the right word. I felt like I was crashing some Zoom meetings. Um, Dr. Jill Biden was doing a virtual campaign swing through Colorado, and even she alluded to the fact that this is not how things are normally done. I'm so pleased to be with you here today, even if I can't actually be there in Colorado Springs with you. So this was actually a military spouse's roundtable. So she was talking with spouses from different bases in Colorado, from Army, Navy, Air Force. You know, it was both um, comforting and surreal. Like, it was comforting because this is what you kind of expect from a campaign stop. You know, there was music playing while you were waiting for the event to start. There were glowing introductions. It was an opportunity for Biden, who was a surrogate for her husband, Joe, to talk about him and to talk about, you know, the issues that are important to both of them. Right. But then it was so surreal because you're just watching it, or at least I was, alone. You know, there are no crowds. <laughs> there's no applause. It's it's all kind of stripped down to the bare bones. And that was definitely different. That feels stranger in a different way than a normal campaign event, because usually it's people trying to act normal in front of a ton of cameras, and now it's people trying to act normal alone in their houses. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think it could also increase the possibility for catching someone off guard or a viral moment, because Hmm. things in a way are more amplified with a close-up shot via Zoom. I recently covered a forum between the two Democratic candidates running for U.S. Senate, former Governor John Hickenlooper and former State House Speaker Andrew Romanoff. A a lot of people signed up to watch that, 800 people. And Republicans quickly seized on a moment where Hickenlooper, the perceived frontrunner in that race, had kind of an awkward situation where he was taking a long confused seeming pause. Governor Hickenlooper, what would you do to reassert Congress's role? Um, first, I think that, that uh, ah, sorry, I, I was on the um, reassert the role. I lost my track of my questions. In a typical forum, where not as many people from the opposition may actually be in the room at that moment with a different shot, I don't know if it would have gained the traction that it did. I wouldn't go so far as to call it a viral moment, but it just is a slightly different dynamic in those forums with Zoom. So it's not just the uh, the events either. We're also seeing campaigns adapt to virtual field organizing 
I got a tour of the the Trump software, which is called Trump Talk, that they're using to organize volunteers. And it's basically a web-based interface that they are using to have volunteers auto-dial through a phone list and talk to other Republican or likely Republican voters. And I'll play you a clip of John Pence explaining how it works. John Pence is the vice president's nephew and the deputy executive director of the campaign. Begin by putting the number of calls you wish to complete today for President Trump and Republicans. Hit submit. This is just a fun way to set a goal for the day. Nothing will happen if you don't reach that goal for the day. And apparently people have been taking them up on this opportunity. The Trump campaign says that they've contacted a million Coloradans since they went virtual in March. That's one plus side I've heard from campaigns during the era of coronavirus is that they do have time to make more phone calls, volunteers, staff, and then also candidates for fundraising, which is a big part of running for office. If they actually master how to do it, it probably lets them create a more curated or, or kind of edited event. Yeah, I, I would say probably the downside is really for us. It just it, it limits our opportunity to actually talk to people and find out what they feel about the candidates. Like you said earlier, Caitlin, it's still just kind of awkward. And so I think they still got some work to do to make these events feel more natural. So that's some of the November campaigns warming up in Colorado and looking really different than usual. But in a weird way, the elections might be one of the most normal things happening in politics right now. I've spent a lot of the last couple weeks watching the Joint Budget Committee. That's a group of some of the most influential lawmakers in the state of Colorado. And they've been going through this really detailed and at times confusing, but also gut-wrenching process where they're trying to find billions of dollars of budget cuts in the state government. You know, this is controlled by Democrats, but they've been unweaving a lot of Democratic priorities because they need the money. One moment that stood out to me was Danea Eskar, the chair of the JBC, taking a moment to argue for these support programs for people with substance use issues. And it really encapsulated the whole debate for me. This treatment program has literally saved lives in Southern Colorado. And I know that we could say that about any of the opioid treatment programs. But I, I mean, I'm looking at this. I know we need to take haircuts from everywhere, but I don't like OSPB's idea of just taking it all. I wouldn't want to. I feel like if we took all the funding... When we're going through cuts this deep, there's nothing that's off limits. Education and health care do make up the largest part of the state's discretionary spending. So schools and health and social programs are especially vulnerable to cuts because there's no way to avoid it when we have a shortfall in the billions of dollars. And I think they're hoping that the feds and to some extent nonprofits pick up some of the slack for now. Well, the federal stimulus money, the CARES Act, did inject about $1.7 billion for state and local governments. Um, the state is using most of that money, but it must be used for direct COVID-19 expenses. So there are restrictions. Right. And there are some members in Congress that are trying to sort of loosen those restrictions. The Fed spent almost $3 trillion trying to fight the coronavirus and to deal with the economic fallout from the virus. Right now, they're looking forward to another bill, but there doesn't seem to be that same sense of urgency that accompanied the last four, at least when it comes to Republican leaders. They want to pause, even as people, local governments, um, and businesses continue to clamor for more help. So basically, everyone is in for a long wait before uh, more federal help is coming. Oof. 
Democrats were waiting to see what a second federal stimulus wave would look like before coming back into session. But we don't have time for that because the next fiscal year starts on July 1st and Colorado has to pass a balanced budget with or without more federal money coming in. So it'll be really interesting to see how this debate plays out when it now includes the full legislature instead of just those handful of JBC members. One topic I'll be watching is K-12 education, where the JBC has considered some really dramatic changes to how school funding works in Colorado, cutting funding for wealthy districts or leaning on local districts to pay more of the school's bill instead of the state potentially paying as much as it does. State lawmakers have debated for years if there are ways to change how Colorado funds K-12 through schools, but Mm. it's such a complicated topic. It's very controversial. Mm -hmm. It's never gotten any traction, so it would be crazy if they suddenly had the will to do this in the middle of a crisis like this. That is an excerpt of the latest Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Hosts Ben Berkland and Andrew Kenny welcomed our D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim this week. It's not easy being a kid these days, especially when it's your birthday. That's why two comedians from Colorado tried to write a children's book, Lily and Timmy's super awesome, incredible COVID-19 birthday. And they did it. Mike Farrell and Jacob Horn described the book as a tongue-firmly-planted-in-cheek children's story that's definitely for adults, too. Mike speaks first. We thought to ourselves, like, what if we just wrote a story about some mom with their kids? And it's like, hey, can we go to Disneyland? It's like, no. Hey, can we go here? It's like, no. Hey, can we do this? It's like, no. And so at first it was kind of like this dark comedic idea. And it turned out that it was actually this heartfelt children's story with some adult comedic elements where our sense of humor really shines through. Also, we were reading it and we're like, This is probably the first time we've ever written anything that doesn't have any profanity in it. So this must be a sign sign that we're supposed to write this children's book. The story follows twins Lily and Timmy, who have to change birthday plans because of a stay-at-home order. Their mom does everything to make the day super awesome and incredible, all while their dad takes COVID-19 precautions to the extreme. The father in this character is the comedic person who is participating in like the pandemonium of COVID-19. But you're seeing like this heartfelt mother who is in a situation where her kids, they have to shelter in place with the family and they're supposed to go to Disneyland for their sixth birthday. And it's like, well, what would any mom do? Well, in Mike and Jacob's world, that mom would bring Disneyland home. Mike emphasized why it felt important to give kids a book like this now. We try to convey some of that disappointment because we want the kids that had to experience this, we want them to be able to relate to these characters so the moms can say, look, these kids wanted to go to Disneyland and they couldn't go. Do you remember when you couldn't go to the park or you couldn't go to the movies or you couldn't go to Disneyland? And the kids will say, yeah, I remember that. Say that happened to them. And they're a little bit sad. Like, that's that's sad. Jacob says the book also celebrates the hard work moms and dads do for their kids. We were hoping to kind of show children that, like, dude, your parents do a lot for you with, with the idea that maybe you don't notice, you don't realize, you don't see it. 
but your mom and your dad are always doing something to make you happy, to always take care of you, and they always want the best for you. You know what I mean? We're, we're super excited for people to see this. Like whether or not it's a financial success doesn't really matter so much to us. But like if, if parents love it, like if we get texts from parents saying, hey, that made us really laugh. Like, like we've never had a children's book like make us laugh like that. Or if we get like a video from parents of like the kids and the kids are just blown away by the images, for us, that's the big deal. Comedians Jacob Horn from Pagosa Springs and Mike Farrell, who grew up in Colorado. Their new book for kids is Lily and Timmy's Super Awesome, Incredible COVID-19 B-Day. You can download it from Amazon. Finally today, a sick, sick beat. And I mean sick as a compliment, not as in coronavirus. One lifeline for me during the pandemic has been dancing in my apartment. And I ran across a track from Carl Carroll, who grew up on Denver's West Side. In 2016, Westward named him Best Producer DJ. Apparently the track I heard is unreleased, but Carl is going to let us play it so that you can bust a move too. In fact, if it's safe, get up and dance right now into this holiday weekend. From Denver sound artist Carl Carroll, he's put some pep in my step through the pandemic. I'm Ryan Warner, out of breath. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>